1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at zerofoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody, rugged, resilient, and timeless.
2: Hey, what up? Welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. My latest guest on All Ball, and this is a good one, is a childhood friend of mine, Rashid Hazard. Uh, everybody knows him as Tutu in L.A., where he grew up, and she is a an incredible Human being, as well as basketball coach, currently coaching in the uh, BAL, that's the Basketball African League. And he's coaching the team out of South Africa. And we'll get into that. We'll get into growing up as son of Walt Hazard, what it was like coaching with the Lakers, how he got in there, and uh, why it didn't work with Phil Jackson and the Knicks. But before we get to that, how good have the NBA playoffs been? Right. And Obviously, if you follow me on Twitter, there's been a back and forth where people, I don't think, truly have an understanding of what my tweet or commentary was about. In fact, the commentary was more on the radio show, which you can listen to daily, 3 to 5 Eastern time, 12 to Pacific, um, or or have been on social media about Kendrick Perkins' remark. My My point is simply that when Kendrick Perkins... Gave the old, hey, are people giving Joel Embiid a pass basically because he's white? You know, I wonder which he he felt like there was some sort of need for more diversity in voting. And that was the reason that Steve Nash won back to back MVPs and that Jokic was the odds on favorite at the time. My tweet was simply that before Kendrick Perkins said anything, Jokic was the clear favorite to win a third straight MVP. And afterwards, he didn't play as well down the stretch. Um, Embiid didn't play against him. Embiid had that incredible game against the Celtics where he scored half the points for the Sixers. Um, Not sure the Celtics really went for that game anyway, but it doesn't matter. He did have an incredible game. And I think, you know, Drew Hanlon, who's the trainer for Joel Embiid, starts tweeting out videos of Jokic not playing good defense. Um, and there became a narrative of, hey, this is us versus the analytics crowd. All of those things took place after Kendrick Perkins made the MVP race about race. Um, I don't know. I don't think Joel Embiid won it because of his race, or but I, I just think it put voters in a bad spot. It's like, what do I do? I just want to vote who I want to vote for. Joel Embiid wins the MVP. What's interesting is, jokic has kind of been better in the playoffs right but you could also say that how good has devin booker been in the playoffs and a healthy anthony davis holy cow right now granted they've only played three games two of which he was dominant one of which he was not and the two he was dominant the lakers won both those games so i think some of it is we have to factor in that that's why the future mvp awards where you have to play a certain number of games Kevin Durant is an elite, elite player. He probably doesn't have the explosiveness anymore, so maybe he never wins another MVP award. But it is fair to say that he may have been in Kawhi this year. They were the best players in the league at times. But you couldn't give him an MVP because they didn't play enough in the regular season, whereas Embiid, Jokic, and frankly, Giannis did. Um, but now when it's playoff time, man, Jokic is incredible. I mean, freaking incredible and we'll see with Embiid you know they they won two games with James Harden kind of carrying them um, as he but you got to also factor in that when you sprain a knee you got to get back up to speed you're not going to go from zero to 100 and dominate the NBA I think Joel Embiid is the rightful I thought he should have won the MVP last year more so than this year but I mean if you want to say he's the best most dominant player in the league for the past two years that's fine I think is in that discussion. I think Giannis is in that discussion. And it's a regular season award. In the postseason, Jokic has been better. But so is Booker. And so is Booker. And yet, that doesn't mean he should have won the MVP. I still think I would have voted for Jalen Brunson. Because of the change in that franchise, people thought, even going back to December this year, that Tibbs was going to be fired. And look at the Knicks now. Granted, struggling in, in this playoff series. Playoff basketball has been great. I think I'll give you some Lakers, Warriors thoughts the day after, which is again Tuesday, uh, and Monday is this is the recording of, uh, of this podcast. So I'll give you more thoughts and I'll have more podcast uh, more podcast thoughts on the transfer portal and some of the things we're seeing in the college game. But first, let's get you to our guest. Uh, this is Rashid Hazard. He's the head coach of the Johannesburg Tigers. In the B-A-L Joining me on the pod um, Where are you at this Very moment?
0: F- physically Geographically in the world I am in Johannesburg South Africa sitting in the Hyatt House which has become my home So it's a the Hyatt House is just a hotel right? Yeah just a hotel but you know Got a little kitchenette so I can Act like I'm in an apartment
2: <laughs> Overseas so, um, paint paint the picture of what what it's like like you go outside the doors what's it, what's it like for like as a, you're an american la new york wherever what's johannesburg like in terms of day to day
0: life man like well, where i am which is like close to Santa city which is like the richest square mile in all of africa so that's like century city you know century city or uh, you know, like, uh, downtown or something like that, downtown LA, but it's, it's really nice, it's a really nice part of town, but I've also spent some time in the townships, uh, like, in Soweto, um, uh, in Tembisa, where they have this group called the Slaughterhouse that plays pickup balls, like a group of older guys, like ourselves, uh, that play ball, and they kind of mentor the kids in the area, um, uh, so I've spent some time in the townships as well, which has been pretty cool, so it's, uh, it's actually a really like great experience man because there's so much uh history here in South Africa and especially in Johannesburg uh with the apartheid movement um and everything that is uh that has happened with that and so i've been I've been uh really enriched with just all the history and all the events that are happened so it's been it's been a hell of an experience for me. okay so but mentioning apartheid
2: and you're in the wealthiest part of South Africa what's it like racially in terms of just the area you're in right? Is it all black? Is it all white? Is it mixed? Like,
0: wh- what, is it, what does it feel like? Yeah, where I am, is very it's really mixed. get a little bit of everything. We get a lot of, there's a lot of tourists in the area, too, because it's Santa City. It's kind of like the hangout spot. You know, it's kind of like where everybody goes to the club, like remember old Century Club and Century City. They got all the restaurants that turn into the clubs at night. And so it's like a really, really popping nightlife. Not that I'm enjoying it at all, but if I was 10 years younger, I'd be having a hell of a time, let's just say that. Um, but it's a really, uh, really mixed uh, racially over here. And um, it's kind of high end, but you get a little bit of everything. And then you also see, obviously, a lot of the workers um, commute through this area. So you get to interact with people of all social classes, which is actually pretty cool, too. Um uh, so I, I want to. Uh, here, here's
2: how I normally like to do, like chronological. So we'll go way back in a yeah. second. But I mean, I think where you are currently is so interesting. I I to just like use this as kind of like a tease ahead to what's what's kind of more to come. Um, but you're you're coaching in the African Basketball League, right? Is that what it's called? That's basketball African League B A L. Um,
0: this is your first time being a head coach, isn't it? My very first time being a head coach. I coached in Japan. In- third division, but I don't really count that. It was kind of, you know, it's a little lower level, uh, really good league, but the level, this is an NBA-affiliated league, so I really consider this my first head coach job. Um, is it, Do in, in, when when you're walking
2: around, do people know of the league? Like, do people watch it? Is it yet a thing?
0: I think when I first got here, it wasn't as much in Johannesburg, I have some people who knew, but after our experience this past weekend in Cairo, um, I feel like it's a lot more visible because when I was in the airport, I had three or four people walk up to me um, and just like people from South Africa who were really proud because on Saturday, we won our last game to advance to Kigali to the playoffs And we had three of our imports were hurt. Three out of our four imports were injured and they missed the game. And we won the game with our South African national players. And so that was a great source of pride for the, for the local community and for South Africa as a whole. And so I feel like we did a big thing for South Africa basketball on Saturday and driving the culture forward. And so I'm really excited to be a part of that. Uh, Let's go back. Okay. Um, When we first met,
2: I mean, I, I remember it distinctly. Obviously, your dad was head coach at UCLA. And you guys, you grew up in the Crenshaw District. Um, yeah. What what was what was childhood like for being a hazard, right? Son of a legend and a guy who, yeah. there's just a lot to your dad, right? There's his conversion to Islam, um, his winning, you know, he was the guy who's most responsible we're seen as most responsible for changing UCLA's program coming from Philadelphia winning a national championship but for you
0: when you're a kid, what was that like? I mean man it was it was unreal because he he was just such a, a dynamic man you know what I mean he was yeah he was an even greater dad than he was a basketball player you know the way he the way he poured into all of us and and you know really built our confidence. Comp- because he knew what we would face out in the world being sons of Walt Hazard. And we would get the comparisons and people would talk about, we should make it to the NBA. And he used to say stuff to people like, I remember when I started to get pretty good and people would be like, hey, Walt, this is the one. And he would say, oh, he don't have to play basketball. He's going to build spaceships. And his, it was his way of taking the pressure off of us to let us know that whatever we did in life, he was going to be proud of us and happy with and happy with. And so, I mean, it was really, you know, I mean, it was a surreal experience. You know, we grew up around, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson would come to the house. You know, after a, after a Laker game, we'd come home and, you know, Jamal Wilkes is sitting up in the bedroom, like, hanging out with him, sitting on a, on, a, on a, you know, lounge chair, just chilling. And they're watching TV and listening to jazz records. Um, you know, Will Chamberlain and just the people we were exposed to um, at the level at the age we were exposed to them and it just, you know, it was actually cool because they just were like normal people to us. It wasn't anything special. And so um, I think him doing that for us really built our confidence and really pushed us in ways that, you know, we could never imagine. You know, I know he's not so popular now, but Bill Cosby was another person who, you know, we were exposed to early in like a different world. I don't know if you even know this story, the show A Different World. Remember Sinbad and Don Lewis? Sure. Their names were Walton, Walter and Jaleesa, named after my parents. And so I read, I read. Like, Yeah, like you think about it now, you're like, oh, that's true. Like so, and the story was loosely based on how they met in college. And so um they made they made that normal for us. It wasn't they never made us feel like we were better than anybody. They were like, This is just your life. And you know, you still have a responsibility to be yeah. humble and to be kind. To people and they made that the focus of what we did growing up. It wasn't about you know showing our privilege, which is we were very privileged
2: you know it's it's interesting um, yeah, my experience it's it's weird. My experiences with you when I would come to your house were that was like you walk in and there'd be somebody who, if you knew anything about anything in basketball and life like and it was just very normal right it's just yeah. very very normal. I remember one time uh, I got to be a ball boy with you at a game yeah. and um, Reggie was we were feeding Reggie Miller before the game like hour and a half before the game and he was shooting barefoot and I, was, yeah. I just I, I, I remember like there's so many kind of unique things about your life and your existence and about again how not just normal but how you weren't entitled how, how did your dad do that how was it so that you didn't you didn't act like you're better. Like what? What? What would he do? What would he say other than just um, taking the pressure off of
0: you? I think one of the big roots of that was was Islam. Um, you know, the humility that you have to have in Islam was a big part of the root of that. Um, and then I think it was other things like you know, obviously he was the coach at UCLA. We used to first we were with Puma, and we used to get these big boxes of shoes from Puma, and he would make you know, we get like. Fifteen pairs of shoes, and he'd say, "You know, pick six or seven, so you had some because we tear through them." And then we would take the extra ones and give them to the kids at the mosque. You know, we would give them to kids who just needed them. And he would just that helped us understand like what we had and what other kids sometimes didn't. And you know, you don't know the lesson that you're learning when you're a young man or a, or a boy. But as you grow into a young man and you carry that same sense of giving and humility with you, um, it just ends up shaping your life. And it's how my mom and my dad were. You know, they were they were givers. They were helpers. You know, every kid in the neighborhood, as you know, came to our house. Our back door was always open. People just walked right in. You know, they go pour a glass of Kool Aid and come sit down on the couch and just hang out. And so it was always like an open door policy. You know, I remember my brother, Jalal, uh, who passed away in September, met Chris Mills. They were playing on a youth team together at Queen Anne Park. And, um, you know, Chris was just at our house and we looked up and three months later, Chris was still living at our house. You know, he was sleeping on the bunk beds with us. And so it was just that sense of giving and helping people that we watched our parents do. And we watched them give so freely, you know, they bought groceries and there was another kid at the house. My mom fed that child not to ask their parent for money in return, but because that was the sense of community she wanted to build. And so I think my mom and my dad did a great job just instilling community and humility in us and, and being givers and not takers.
2: What was the decision like for you in terms of playing in college, where to play in college?
0: It was pretty easy. Um... I had a few schools that were looking at me locally. Um, I really wanted to go to the East Coast. I really kind of wanted to get away. I went on a visit to GW. I went the last weekend or the next to last weekend of the recruiting period. I hadn't yet committed and I got there and the guys, Nimbo Hammonds and uh, Omo Moses and Billy Calloway, Anthony Wise, these guys were all going to be seniors. And they just took Antoine Hart, they just took me in. Like a little brother, and um, I just felt the sense of family there that I hadn't that I hadn't felt uh, anywhere else. And just feeling that sense of family made the decision really easy, you know. Uh, even Coach Jarvis, you know, Coach Jarvis and his his wife were very welcoming to me. And we didn't end up having the greatest relationship during my time there for many different reasons. But ever since, you know, I talk to Coach, we text all the time. He's one of my biggest supporters since I've gotten into the coaching profession. Um, and, you know, I'm just, it was the best decision I made in my life was going to GW and staying
1: there. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at FoxSportsRadio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
2: Why, why, why didn't you? And I, and I asked because I think I actually know the answer from an outside perspective. But why do you think you didn't have? Because, like, Mike Jarvis is, right, like, he came up with Pat, he was Pat Ewing's high school coach, right? incredibly bright, educated dude, like about so many of the right things. And you would think that, you know, his respect for your father and your family and how you played, you were an incredibly cerebral player. You would think that would mesh really well. Why didn't it?
0: You know, I don't, I think a couple of reasons. I don't think he got me as a, as a person. I think he had expectations of who I would be. You know, his son would make jokes and like, try to say, "Oh man, he's the the fresh prince of Bel Air," and I'm like, "Nah, bro. Like, you don't understand. I grew up in the city. Like, I didn't go to private. School. I, I grew up at Rancho Siena Park. I went to Venice High. I went to Laces, where like we were city kids. We went to public schools, and they thought I had it. They thought I was coming in with the privileged private school mentality, like a lot of people. And I think that was the biggest mistake. And it just, it just started us off on the road wrong note and you know i have no none of my my animosity at the time was around whether i played or not it was it was never about that it was how you treated me as a human being and i didn't think that they valued me as a person and i didn't think they treated me the way that i expected to be treated and my father, my parents taught us uh, to be an, be advocates for ourselves when I, at 18 i wasn't afraid to be that advocate for myself Um, So I stood up for myself when I thought he was trying to, like, embarrass me or he was doing things that were outside of the realm of what a coach is is supposed to do with a player, which is something I understood very well having grown up at UCLA, watching the way my dad dealt with his athletes, knowing Coach Wooden, knowing the various college coaches we both were privileged to grow up knowing. And I just didn't think um, some of the things he did with me – were becoming of a man of his caliber and a coach of his caliber. And I was very willing to tell him that. And I understood the repercussions of standing up for myself and I have no regrets. And I don't think he should have any regrets either uh, because he handled it the way he thought was appropriate at the
2: time. How much of that has formed you into the coach and person you are today? Okay. Not just, what your parents taught you, but the experience of being on the other side of a guy who doesn't understand you as a person. And so there can't be a relationship between player and coach. How much of that is, even though it's an, it's, it's a clear negative, but has helped shaped you into who you
0: are currently. It's everything. Um, When I started as a high school coach at Venice High, I didn't look at my, at, at the guys on my team as my players. I more tried to look at them as my, my children or my nephews. Um, and so I valued them as people first. And I made sure that I showed them that not only did I respect them, but I loved them and I wanted the best for them and everything that I was going to do with them was geared toward that. And I tried to make that the clear driving point of my message And that continues to this day, even when I got to the was fortunate to get to the NBA, um, I still coach the same way because I think a coach is just an extension of like a parent or a family member if you do it the right way. And to build the trust that you need to be able to coach a player, um, you have to build a relationship with them first. And so I focus on the relationships with my players as opposed to trying to just be their coach. And I think that's really important, especially in this day and age, um, with where a lot of our young men are. I think it's really important that we connect with them on level besides player coach.
2: You know, it's 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 interesting because um, you grew up in LA. You're in high school during the riots, right? I mean, um, you talk about turbulent. Like your dad's legend UCLA. He gets fired, right? Like you've been through a lot of all kinds of different stuff. But when you became a high school coach in Venice in 2000, those kids don't know any of that. (laughs) They, 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 they don't know any of that. Like literally any of, and, um, how do you weave that into your teachings and message? Or is it like, look, I'm making references. It's like the Bill Cosby thing. Like, you and I know, obviously, like, let's just take Bill Cosby, okay? So, you mentioned Bill Cosby today and you actually almost have to, like, apologize. Like, but hold on. <laughs> if you take the, right? If you take the context of the time, right? he was, what he did was groundbreaking, right? Number one show on television. Right? It was the first show ever that was, was, was all black. Like, it was during a, it was completely different than anything that had ever been done. And, and this is a big thing. It was there was a lot of family values taught into it, right? You had mom and dad in the home. Incredibly educated, black doctor was the was the was the role that he played. And so, like, if you try and reference, like, hey, when I was a kid, Bill Cosby, like, whoa, Bill Cosby, like, they they have no concept of the the people, the time, the place, like your dad, the influence he had on so many different people. Are are you able to? draw those stories and make them part of your coaching through Like, just go back to Venice high school for five years. Were you able to weave that in or is it, it's too far in the past for them to conceptualize?
0: No, I really was able to weave that in because, you know, my brother Jalal was my assistant coach. So there was close connections to all of those things. And the big thing that happened was even though my dad had had a stroke four years prior my dad was essentially a part of our coaching staff. He came to every game, came to practices when he could. And what I did with my team, my first year team, is I took them to UCLA and we went to the, the hall of fame. So they could have an understanding of the tradition that we were trying to build and follow behind. Obviously I wasn't coach. Wooden, And we didn't have a Walt Hazard or Bill Walton or Lou Alcindor at the time. Um, but it was those same values and character traits that we were looking for in players and trying to build in our players. So if they met Coach Wooden. They all got autographed pyramids of success. Um, I used the pyramid of success. I exposed them to that UCLA tradition um, that was so rich running through our city as we were kids, and I tried to like revitalize that through my program because. You know, why wouldn't you try to reconnect back to like that championship atmosphere that was built by Coach Wooden? And it was built around the pyramid of success, which was about like high character, you know, and all the different things that were important to it. And so I made the connections, I think very organically. Lucius Allen would come and stop by practice and do a clinic. You know, I didn't have an ego. So Darwin Cook would come in and do workouts with my guys. And so I brought, pros in uh, to come and play against us. You know, Toby Bailey and those guys, we had all just finished. So, you know, Toby would need a gym to come hoop in and I would open the doors for Toby to come in and play ball um, while he was pursuing his pro career. You know, uh, Rico Hines, Ray Young, uh, Matt Barnes in later years, Jelani McCoy was still around So I brought those guys in and they would, you know, beat the hell out of my team. But the lessons they learned playing against those guys were so valuable and it connected them to that UCLA uh, history. And then again, like having my my dad sitting directly behind my bench, every game right next to where I was um, for me, you know, it was just incredible because it was like I got to coach with my dad and my brother um, at the same time and always give them credit for being the people who pushed me in the coaching more than anybody. And so I think that's the way we connected. It was, you know, they, my dad was present. He wasn't like this mythological character that I spoke about and all his accomplishments. And during that time he was working for the Lakers. So he was getting the championship rings. And so I would have him wear one of the rings by the time they had the three p I I would wear one. My dad would wear one and Jalal would wear the other one. And so I brought not only the the UCLA legacy there, but I brought the Laker legacy into it as well by showing them that this stuff is real. You can touch these. You can have one of these one day. You can you can be one of those guys. And so I think by making it real for them and giving them the chance to, like, actually touch that history, I think that was like earth shattering for us, man. It really took my program to another level in a short time.
2: What was it like to then go join the Lakers organization?
0: Man, that was That was like crazy The way it happened I was at University of Portland the year before With Michael Holton, another UCLA guy Who hired me sure. we, get fired, we get fired in April I come home I was just I went back to what I was doing as a high school coach Taking care of my pops And after we would work out in the morning We would go up to the Laker facility And we pop in there B-Shaw's on one end, working guards out Kurt Rambis is on the other end and that ball is bouncing all over the place. You know, Kurt bad hips is chasing the ball. So I volunteered to rebound one day, ended up volunteering for like two or three weeks. They went on vacation uh, right before training camp started. And um, they wanted to shut down the workouts, but Bynum, Chris Chris I think Sasha was there at the time. They were like, you know, why don't you just let us work out with him? Like let him, let him keep it going. So, I kept the workouts going, and Tex Winter showed up very next week. So I do my workout, and then Tex sits me sits me down and starts to, you know, inquire about who I am. And you know, he's like, "I remember you from when we were here the first time." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm Walt Son, and I've been coaching. I just got fired at University of Portland." He's like, "Man, I really like your energy and what you do." He started teaching me the triangle by himself, so he would teach me the triangle for like two hours. And then take me on the court after I'd just been on court for two hours and make me go through a triangle workout for another, like, hour and a half, two hours, you know, text. And so he went to Mitch Kupchak and Phil Jackson. He, along with Brian Shaw and Jim Clemens and Craig Hodges, and implored them to hire me. So I started off, Doug, as I was just doing advanced scouting, making $250 a scouting report. And I was doing player development, literally minimum wage I had to fill out time sheets the whole nine at the end of every week um and that's how I got started with the Lakers and it was just man it was like my dream was to learn the triangle and work for Phil Jackson literally that's what I wanted and here I am and I have this opportunity even though I don't care what I was making like I'm in the building um I'm, I'm in the video room um I'm, I'm I'm getting a chance to watch Phil put a practice plan together with his coaching staff, and they're entrusting me to go on the court and work guys out through the triangle because Tex taught me so. And then you know we're LA kids, man. We LA boys. We're you know we're I was a, the biggest Laker fan in the history of the world. Now I'm a now I'm a, a Laker. Like are you kidding me? So it was the I mean it was like that you know moment where you want somebody to pinch you to tell you if this is real or not, and. You know, then Kobe, who I met in 96, because Jelly Bean and my dad were really close friends from Philadelphia. Sure. Jelly Bean, you stayed with my dad in the summers uh, when my dad was a pro and he'd be in Philly. Jelly Bean would stay with my dad and, you know, they would play. So he introduced me and Kobe in 96. So when I come back now, I'm about to be a coach. You know, he's, you know, you know how Kobe is. He's like, oh, you, are you a coach now? You you turning into an old man? You know, you? I was like, I, like my first year, all I did was Clipper games for like the first three months until I proved that I could put the report together, um, that I was trustworthy enough, you know, be on time with my reports. Information was accurate. Once they got, once I got to that point, they started sending me out on the road and I was doing like 17 day, 15 game, 15 city trips. And it was like getting your PhD in basketball. You know, so, like, so
2: wait, wait, help me out. Help me out when you're putting these scouting reports together. How did they want them? What, get, like, try and like, try and paint me a mental picture of what it so looks like because this is
0: before the days of synergy, right? I paid a test at synergy, which is crazy. I'm dating myself. So, Phil Jackson, you know, Phil is different. So, Phil wanted a one-page, three-paragraph narrative that described what the team did and how they played. Literally, single space. Okay. So I had to write these narratives. Like I was like I was a history major, so it was perfect. So I had to write like a paper for every game. and then I had to do the diagrams of all the plays that I saw. And then I also had to send in a timesheet. But this is the days before you could scan an email, too. So these were like fifteen page faxes. And so I'm carrying around these big diagram books everywhere I go, and I'm doing diagrams by hand. And I'm typing in word, this three paragraph, one page narrative for Phil to read so he can understand how our opponent played. And it was actually the best thing for me because it really made you think analytically um and be really efficient with the information that you gave back uh, to the coaching staff. And um it was it was a hell of a, a hell of a way to break in. Um but that was the way he wanted. It. That's the way he had always done it. There wasn't any fast scout and fast draw and all the stuff we have now. Like I said, I, I saw the first versions of all this stuff. Um so I, I I'm like the old head in the game now. Was it was it better then? I, I I hate I don't like when when we as older guys say oh it was better then. I think it was it was a great way to learn. I wish some of these young guys got to learn it that way and all the work wasn't done, you know, for us when we use these things. Um, I wouldn't say it was better because it wasn't as efficient. Um, You know, you couldn't get as many things done and you couldn't get the information back to the coaches as quickly as possible. You know, sometimes B. Shaw would call me and be like, man, you know, you sent me a 20-page fax, but I only got 17. So then we'd have to figure out what pages were missing, what jammed right. in the factory, you know, so it definitely wasn't better, but I think it was a better way to learn because you had to be more involved and the, the, the computer didn't do as much for you. Um, but again, it was not as efficient and you couldn't convey the information as easily as you can now. So there's no way I can say it's better. All right, that's it for part one of Rashid
2: Hazard. Part two, we'll drop that thing very, very soon. Um, And in part two, you'll learn what so many people don't know about Walt Hazard, his dad, as a coach. He was a groundbreaking coach as the head coach of the UCLA Bruins. How so? You'll have to find out in the next All Ball podcast. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball.